Hello, I'm Simon Lunt and this is Don't Sell Yourself Short, the Silent Sales Podcast. In the last episode, we spoke with Ian Farrell from Double Eleven about sales in the world of video game development. So where on earth do we go from there? Well, as you'll discover in this series, no industry is off limits, so we'll be all over the place quite deliberately. But there's one consistent theme in the sales profession, and that is pressure and stress. I was keen to explore the highs and lows of professional sales, and in this episode, I speak with Catherine Tiddy from the Happy Work Project. Catherine is a self-confessed happiness geek, and her mission is to help people and organisations to create happier working lives for all. As a managing director for a large national recruitment business, Catherine created, grew, inspired and developed successful teams, always putting people first. Catherine believes that we all spend too much of our lives at work to waste it being unhappy, which inspired her to start up the Happy Work Project. Our discussion was an eye-opener for me, as Catherine enlightened me on several areas of neuroscience, and I'm sure will help you better understand how you could work towards more happiness in your business. I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to Catherine. Hi. Catherine, this isn't your first podcast, is it? You've been guests on a few others. Tell us about those. I'm still a little bit of a novice, but yeah, um, I have done a couple of podcasts. I've been on one that um, a good friend of mine runs called The Ambitious Mum. That was my first, I think. Um, which was really good. I really enjoyed it, actually. And you always kind of cringe at hearing your voice, don't you? But um, other than that, it was, yeah, it was excellent. That was kind of talking through, I suppose, my journey of how I've got to where I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing, which was quite good. Um, And then the other one was uh, with a guy who's actually based out in Thailand that was... um, He was interviewing me around the whole concept of Work Happy. It's a business that I do some work with, so... So yeah, still all pretty new, but I'm learning what I'm doing as I'm going along. Well, that's fine. Well, I appreciate you joining me. Um, I mean, do you do you listen to or have you listened to many podcasts before? What's do you have some favourites or some types that you've listened to? I think for me, podcasts at one point were a really what's the right word to say a really kind of critical part of my journey of jacking in the corporate world and, and taking the, the brave steps into uh, setting up my own business. I used to commute a huge amount and it used to, commuting used to frustrate the life out of me. It was one of the main reasons that, that I decided to kind of jack it all in. And once I'd kind of taken this sort of more positive twist, it was from doing some coaching that I kind of got myself there. And um, I started thinking, right, how can I use this time? and to benefit me more so I started listening to lots of podcasts around um kind of setting up your own business building up your kind of confidence learning to decide um what it was you actually really wanted so they became a really sort of pivotal part um in that that kind of decision making really so there's two girls that um really really kind of were part of that their podcasts called amazing if which is excellent. I'd really recommend it. Um, so it's all kind of career-based. So they've also written a book called Squiggly Careers. Um, and that's a really practical, kind of really good way to, to kind of get to grips with what you want with your career, if you like. Um, and I think outside of that, I've listened to quite a lot around, um, oh, I'll tell you one of my faves. And his name has completely gone out of my head. Um, we can stick it in the link like YouTubers. It's fine. That's <laughs> it's oh, he's a doctor. Gosh, I listen to it. I used to listen to him all the time when I walked the dog. And I haven't for ages because I've had kids in tow constantly for <laughs> the last six months. Um, but yeah, those sort of health and well-being around that sort of area, I've, I've listened to a lot of things. I suppose just everybody, as everybody tends to, it's kind of your interest areas, isn't it, that you, you find them on? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I th- I've said to previous guests, I have a, a bit of a mixture of um, daft stuff that I can just escape into and then stuff to try, like you said, try and grow, try and learn and um, try and look good on a train if someone spots what, you, what you're looking at. So as I said before, <laughs> a couple of, couple of philosophy ones that I, that I listen to and, and Frank Boff does one for 
BBC Four, so that at least makes me look a little bit intelligent and backfills some of the <laughs> gaps in the uh, degree in philosophy that I never finished. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about um, the, the journey, as you put it. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Work Happy Project and, and how it came about? It can't have just been the commuting that, that, that took you there. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't quite, but it used to very nearly tip me over the edge most days. Um, yeah, no, I'd love to tell you about it. So it's a um, business that I set up literally a year ago, actually. We're, we're kind of coming to an anniversary point. So as soon as I'd slammed up the kids into school last year, um, I kind of set off and got going with it. So before that, um, to reverse back a little bit, to kind of put it in context, I was an MD for a large national recruitment business. Um, I'd been there for 17 years. Before that, I'd worked again in recruitment straight out of uni. Um, so very much kind of followed the what I'd now look back in hindsight and kind of go expected career path. I'd kind of, you know, worked my way up the the kind of proverbial ladder if you like um got to the top of it and then kind of gone oh this is rubbish this is not what I want this is not you know yes it pays me good money and I've got a great title and a fancy car sat on the drive but I'm not happy and I think that's a really confusing kind of state to be in because your brain goes well, be a bit more bloody grateful. You've got a great job. You've got family life. You've, you know, from the outside, it probably kind of looks like I've got it all sort of thing. And I just had this sort of really nagging, probably for about three years before I left, this kind of nagging feeling that, oh God, this is not what I want to be doing. Um, but also this kind of sense of dread of, well, you know, how the, how the hell do I replace this salary? And what else can I do? This is all I've ever done. I'm probably feeling so many of us have in our kind of mid careers of sort of, right, well, I'm, I'm stuck. There's no, there's no way out. I can't retrain. I can't afford to kind of take a massive pay cut to do something different. So I kind of dived into learning is probably kind of how I would now categorize it. So I kind of thought, okay, this isn't doing it for me. How can I kind of energize myself in a different way so I did um, a, a level seven kind of CIPD course which is a personnel development one and I did it in like career development and talent management and stuff so all all relevant to the the job that I had um, but it really sparked something in me kind of starting to learn again kind of got me really excited again and sort of sparked up and I started then doing tons of self-development. So I guess that's what I'm saying in terms of the podcasts and stuff. You, know, you kind of start thinking, well, I could do that. Well, actually, I could, you know, all these, all these sort of um, thoughts start firing up as to what you could be doing. So that, that basically is how the Work Happy Project was born. Um, mm. I guess I am the project, if that makes sense. So I kind of, you know, I, I sort of thought, well, if I can get myself through this journey then wouldn't it be amazing to to kind of help other people do that which is now you know what my my business or is part of what my business is about so um my real focus or or just love really I kind of I, I really sort of found a huge interest in happiness research because I was kind of I was kind of really intrigued why I wasn't happy when you know I kind of had what I thought I'd set out to achieve, I'd achieved. So it's a kind of really strange feeling to think, well, why aren't I happy? So I started doing loads of reading into it. I started getting really into kind of positive psychology, learning more about that. And that then took me into kind of a real nerdy interest in neuroscience and why people do what they do and um, how the brain works. And you know, over the past year, that's kind of the direction my, my business has sort of gone in really is, is kind of how to help individuals find their work happy. Um, and that's something that I kind of do on a one-to-one -one basis. And I absolutely love doing it. It's, it's an absolute privilege as opposed to feeling like a job and um, to kind of be with people and support people sort of on that journey and see them achieve that happiness. 
Um, and then the other side of the work that I do is, is working with leaders. So leadership has always been something I've loved. Um, and I think there's, there's ways that leaders can really support their people to work happy. Um, so tons of research into kind of what leads people to work happy and what are the elements of it um, kind of has, has helped me create a, a course that I run with leaders and the benefits of, of having a happy team. Okay. So yeah, in a long waffly, <laughs> long waffly way, that that's the journey that I've been on in the last twelve months. No, no, that, that, that's great. No, we like long and waffly. If it was yes, no questions, um, then we we'd have a very short and boring podcast. So, um, I uh, I'm interested in something you, you mentioned. There. So, <laughs> um, you mentioned. I mean, you you hear quite a lot of um, very well paid um, sports people, for example, particularly footballers uh, in in the UK, and. Um, they might mm. talk about something like um, getting depression um, or, you know, not, not feeling fulfilled. And you hear um, on radio stations, people always tend to default to, oh, they're on uh, 50, 100 grand a week. How can they not be, how can they not be motivated? They've got, they've got um, the world at their, at their, at their feet. Um, is, is that, is that a sort of maybe a, uh, an, an example of what you're talking about where uh, I'm not suggesting you're on hundred grand a week, but what I mean is that um, you strived to, to, to get to something and then realized, Oh, I'm not actually fulfilled. Is that, is that what you were describing? I think there's a real, well, there's a huge amount of scientific you know, research and evidence now that shows that whilst we think that we will be happier when we get promoted, when we earn more money, when we um, change jobs, get married, whatever it might be. Actually, our kind of baseline happiness is, is kind of a large proportion of it is genetically set. And money is, is a really interesting facet in this. Um, and I can't bring to mind exactly what the, the numbers were, so I won't try, but it, it was it's, it's largely around the fact that above around $70,000 is an American study. Um, above that level, any incremental gain in, in earning level actually decreases happiness. Wow. Um, and it's really interesting because so many people strive, especially, you know, in, in the industry of sales, that obviously, you know, we've, we've both been in. There's this real feeling that, you know, if I just earn a lot of money and if I hit great commission, I'll be happy. And actually, there's not a huge amount of evidence that shows that, that it's money that makes us happy. Um, clearly, everyone's different, aren't they? People have all got kind of different motivations for, for what they um, are working for but I think certainly for me you know from my own experience I did earn a really good amount of money and I also became really bloody good at spending it on stuff I didn't need <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I used it in hindsight now I think I used it as a bit of a, a cover up my unhappiness if that makes sense I kind of you know well to make myself feel better I'm going to go out at lunchtime and I'm going to spend 200 quid on a suit for work and that didn't make me happy i can tell you now i might have got a short-term buzz when i very first put on that that outfit but geez that that is not the path to happiness i found pretty quickly but it's, it's almost sort of in hindsight that i realized you know a lot of my reasoning for thinking i needed to earn what i was earning and needed to replace that salary um i've realized now is i don't I didn't need it and i was just blowing it to make myself feel better mm. So, well, I mean, I, I've, I've read um, a few things involving surveys that are asking about, um, you know, employee motivators. And what seems mm. to be a very common top of that list is recognition. Is that, is that linked to what you're, you're getting at here? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the way that our brains work is that we need to feel connected so we, we you know we're social animals at the end of the day and you need to have a sense of purpose in what you do and a sense of pride in what you do you kind of the importance of feedback is humongous it's it's massive and 
not only is it, it is it kind of um, important from a motivational point of view, but it's it's critical to kind of our, our sense of well-being. And money doesn't really achieve that. So yes, it it kind of it proves, I guess, it plays to our, our ego. It proves that, well, I must be successful. I'm earning a lot of money or I must be doing a good job. I'm, I'm getting a bonus payment. But in reality, the actual impact of really well-delivered positive feedback will last far, far longer to an individual than an increase in salary does. So again, you know, these kind of studies that I was talking about, they show these peaks of happiness um, and the really kind of extreme of it is where they've studied lottery winners. So they've interviewed lottery winners kind of at the point of, um, you know, getting a huge, huge windfall and asked them to kind of scale and rate their happiness levels. And then they've kind of followed those individuals over periods of, of kind of years. And what, what's been seen is that very, very quickly, that absolute peak in, in happiness, if you like, takes a nosedive straight down to whatever their kind of level of happiness prior to winning the lottery sort of was. And it's, it's fascinating. And the same is true of bad news. Um, and, you know, it's, it's remarkable how resilient we are as, as humans in terms of bouncing back from tragedies and, you know, horrendous things happening, whether that be work related or that be grief or, or you know, whatever it is. And I think, um, this sort of baseline of happiness is is our fixed point. Now we can do a huge amount to increase it. And um, so, so basically, the the studies that I've done around, which have, have been fascinating, or <laughs> I find fascinating, around kind of happiness is around that that fifty percent of your your kind of happiness levels are genetically set set. So this is where you kind of get this perception of you know, people are either glass half full or they're glass half empty. You, know, you get these kind of really bouncy characters or, or really sort of somber characters. And the rest of that sort of makeup, 10% of it can be explained by life situation. So health, wealth to a certain degree, um, your education levels, where you live, these kind of things sort of make up for this sort of 10% difference. But 40% of our happiness levels are within our control and that for me was just mind-blowing information because I kind of that there is where I work with people so you know yes you can't change that genetic bit you can't change instantly your health or your you know your financial scenario or your education level necessarily but what you can do is is make really kind of quick wins in this 40 percent area um, and that's where my, my kind of real focus and interest in well-being has, has come to play, you know, the importance of exercise on how I feel, um, but also kind of working with other individuals of, you know, the importance of things like yoga, like meditation, all these things. If I'm honest, if somebody had told the corporate me of five years ago, I'd have just laughed and said, yeah, you know, I, you know great. If you've got the time for all of that stuff, I'm far too busy and... But, you know, it's, it is amazing the impact that you can have on your own level of happiness um, by focusing on what makes you feel good. But I think a lot of the problem, we don't stop. We don't give ourselves enough of a pause to think about what makes us feel good or what we enjoy doing. No, I, I, that one is fascinating, those numbers. I, I think you may have come across this yourself, but one thing that... Um, I suppose it, 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 it was a bit of an irritant when I was, wasn't working for myself is that what maybe explains um, some, of the, some of the stuff you're talking about or is explained by it, that a lot of people um, in, in businesses, not just in sales roles, but commercially generally, there's always at least one person in an office who quite often likes to be very vocal about how busy they are. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, so we, we know these people and quite often when I looked at it from a compassionate perspective I was thinking why is it that they're vocalizing this and mm -hmm. um, you know why why are they so keen to display how busy they are and how you know how worthy they are and and everything else and it made, made me think that well 
there might be some ways of making them less busy but actually maybe the issue is more that how busy you are and how late you stay and how early you come in how many you know people sending strategically sending an email at five past eight at night so that their boss thinks that they're working and all those silly things is that is that something that um essentially maybe i'm getting a bit too high level here but a sort of capitalist um state that we live in has meant that the corporate world in some cases drives that sorts of behavior and then you're stuck in this you need to be as busy as possible and if you do take a break then you're weak and you're vulnerable mm, yeah absolutely i think there's you know I've, I've certainly experienced that and you know received emails from senior management at like three in the morning and you can read that in two ways but what it said to me is okay you're worried about something and can't sleep i need to be worried about something yeah and i think you know we the impact of each other's behaviors within an organization is huge, isn't it? You know, it's, and, and especially the leaders. And, and that, that's really where my passion on working with leaders to, to, I guess, emphasize it. And a lot of the, the, the way that, that I work is coming at it from a, a fairly sort of um, research backed scientific approach, because you know, if you, you take happiness as a concept, it's quite fluffy. I can tell you from, from sitting in many boardrooms and, and kind of investor meetings and things like that in the past, it's not something that, that you hear a lot of people talking about. And this kind of culture of working harder, and especially I think within sales, I think this, you know, if, if targets aren't being met, the answer is everyone has to work longer hours and they have to work harder and and that's where you get this almost like this badge of busyness sort of approach coming from people is, is this justification that, you know, I'm first in and I'm last out and I'm working really hard. And, and it comes, I think, largely from a place of insecurity, I guess, um, and highlights that there probably is issues there, either that the leadership expect that which I think is quite common I think there's this we can work our way out of a dip or we can you know which I'm not I'm not saying isn't the case you know clearly hard work at, at times is is necessary but I would certainly argue from my learnings around the neuroscience of how people people and people's brains sort of work at work is presenteeism um working yourself to the bone being on all the time being switched on multitasking our brain doesn't like any of that stuff yeah. and our brain's kind of primary function is to keep you safe so you know you, you kind of reverse back to the days where of caveman and everybody was living in a tribe tribal kind of environment our social needs are still today as they were then it was kind of in group out of group you know and that's where these sort of cultures come from dean's gate in manchester on a saturday night before lockdown <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> or probably still despite lockdown um but yeah you know this this kind of social sort of need to follow if you like that the, this kind of need to to be part of of the in-group and i don't mean by that the kind of clique but you know an in-group being kind of within a culture within an organization and you get this this kind of need to conform and i think all of us i'm sure have felt that that when you're operating in a way that you're needing to conform with things that go against your natural sort of values or your your belief system if you like you get this real uncomfortable feeling and I suppose that's that's whilst I didn't realize it at the time I think that that kind of is, is what was going on for me in those sort of latter years where I wasn't sort of feeling happy and, and satisfied with work um, but you know that the brain very very quickly shuts us down in a work environment if we are feeling stressed if we're feeling overwhelmed if we're feeling um really unhappy those sort of states no matter how many hours you do or how many calls you make or how many um you know emails you respond to at 10 o'clock at night 
doesn't achieve you know it doesn't achieve success because you're almost working against the state that your brain wants you to to kind of be in if that makes sense um and where actually we do our best work is when we're feeling safe and i mean that from a kind of psychological though with covid there's probably a physical element to it now as well but where we're feeling in a safe environment um and where we're feeling in this kind of state of being able to um thrive at what we do feel inspired by what we do feel um intrinsically motivated by what we're trying to do and and kind of back to that point we talked about earlier you know money is an extrinsic motivation it's it's a carrot that you're chasing it's not something within you that is making you want to do um that role or, or that task or whatever it might be um, so the motivation or keeping strong motivation purely on extrinsic sort of um, indicators or in, in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, rewards, is actually a, a pretty difficult state to achieve. Hence why, you know, certainly in my experience, you see performance rise and dip all over the show um, because, you know, purely chasing the money doesn't necessarily do it for people. Right. So I've gone all over the show then don't think I actually answered what you asked me. No, no, you, you did. I, I think, I mean, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of sales leaders um, tend to be quite data driven um, in what they're doing. So they're focused on, well, they can be focused on the output, you know, the big number rather than the inputs mm. and things that within people's control, um, you know, which can drive some of the behaviors and the, and the unhappiness, I suppose, that you're, that you're mm. alluding to. I mean, do you, do you feel, well, certainly in your experience and with your clients that you see skill gaps in 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 that front so for example quite often in my experience um the best salesperson ends up as the sales manager or the sales director but yeah. actually they're they're not a very good sales manager um and they they should have probably just been encouraged to carry on being the best that they can be in that job and is, is that something mm. that you've come across Oh yeah, it used to be and, and kind of I think still is certainly in, in the world of recruitment really common um, where as you say, you know, the, those kind of top billers, if you like, um, in, our, in the world that I was in become managers um, and, you know, it isn't necessarily assessed on their, their abilities or their traits to be a leader it's it's based on what they build and their you know yes there's an element that of course that may inspire some people um to follow their lead if you like um but quite often they they haven't had the training um they haven't had the the exposure to i suppose how to understand the behaviors of the people there's certainly you know there's so much psychology at play at work um, it's yeah you know, that that is what fascinates me um, and you almost by understanding what's going on in people's people's minds and in their brains can really help somebody um, get the best out of their people yeah I think a lot of leaders um, certainly in the industry that I was in there's this huge focus on numbers and how many of this have you done and how many of that have you done and I think it works for some people but I think for a lot of people it's really tedious it doesn't motivate it doesn't really engage or excite them and I think it leads to in some cases people just whacking on whatever um, CRM you're using whatever activity they think you want to see and I think that it doesn't doesn't drive the results in my opinion that that I would imagine um, most people are, are ultimately looking to achieve um, but that you know that, that kind of opens into this whole other area of you know in order for for any of us to be um, you know truly motivated to turn up every day and give 100% we've got to really believe in what we're doing and you know this is it comes back to the money thing again no amount of money that you get paid makes you believe in something necessarily um, and this is where some organizations that I, I, I see and I work with are, are amazing at kind of how they communicate 
the vision, how they make sure that everybody's involved in um, in understanding their part in that. They're involved in decisions. They're involved in ideas. You know, some some organisations are amazing at it. Unfortunately, a lot of organisations aren't. And you know, people sat at the front line in in sales roles aren't necessarily feeling that purpose they're not feeling that kind of buy into the bigger picture and and what actually their role is and 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 why that's you know so involved and so critical so they just see that i'm just got to sit here and i've got to do x amount of this activity and x amount of that activity and that that pretty quickly wanes regardless of of how much commission you might be taking home at the end of the month yeah, the, the the bad management, I suppose, or the, that type of management can end up turning a sales role into almost piecework, which, you know, like you said, can't be the, can't be the most fulfilling, certainly medium to long term. But I've I've read that um, in quite a number of different uh, articles and studies that that sales roles tend to end up categorised as you know in the top ten most stressful jobs, along with more. Things that maybe people would expect, like military personnel, psychiatrists, doctors, surgeons, that sort of that sort of job. But um, you you hear that sales is, is always up there somewhere. Um, that probably doesn't surprise you. But I mean, what what do you think it is about sales that makes it so stressful when compared with with other careers? There's a couple of facets to it, isn't there? You know, from my, from my own experience, I think there's that um, performance pressure to achieve is is kind of always there in the background, isn't it? You know, no matter how good you are, the better you become, the higher your targets get. In my in my experience, um, from both sides, you know, for, from having targets set from me, but also setting them from other people, there's this kind of almost this huge ego driven um we've achieved that no you know what's next and bigger and better and and all of that which you know there's a lot of greatness around that sort of approach but there's also a, a lot of pressure that comes with it and it depends on how the individual can manage that pressure um and how well they're managed how how, how that pressure is delivered and i've seen you know I've seen it done amazingly well and I've seen it done so shockingly badly that, you know, I do think a lot of the pressure kind of comes slamming downwards from people at the top. And, you know, I used to always see my role almost as a bit of a filter between what I heard at the top and the pressure I heard at the top with what I I kind of felt that people could cope with positively um and i always kind of felt this real responsibility to not burden um people within my my responsibility with what i was you know what i was picking up as um targets or you know initiatives or whatever it might be you know i think i think that is so common is that quite often through this sort of chain of sales managers, you get this slam down of expectation. Um, and, you know, how it's delivered depends entirely on the skill of that sales manager. Mm. So I think also a lot of the pressure that people within sales feel is, um, is induced by that kind of need to constantly perform. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, but um, how that is managed becomes critical because I think, you know, as soon as we go into any state of fear, which our brain throws us into really quite easily, um, we go kind of, you know, we go into this fight or flight stage um, that you hear people talk about. And when we're in that state of fight or flight, um, basically our, our brain controls our behavior in a very different way. So you know, your prefrontal cortex, which is what I call your kind of thinking brain, your work brain mm-hmm. is where um, goals that you set goals. It's where you perform logical thinking. It's where you regulate your emotions. It's where you perform logic, how you prioritize all of those kind of activities sit in, in or, or driven by your prefrontal cortex. One of the first things to happen when you're 
amygdala, which is this sort of fight or flight region of your brain is activated. So it's constantly scanning for risk. So it's, it's constantly scanning for things that make, you know, that are making us unsafe. And the minute that it, it kind of is triggered and there's different levels at which it triggers, but you know, the minute it's triggered, one of the first things that's happened that happens is it shuts down your prefrontal cortex. So, you know, that feeling you get where you're absolutely under the cosh at work and you're really stressed out and perhaps something's happened or you've just got somebody deliver feedback to you really badly and it's crushed you, you know, that sort of feeling and you can't think straight, you know, to a, to a real sort of high level, you might get sweaty palms, you might have kind of heckles on the back of your neck, you might have feel like you can't get your breath, you know, that's the, the kind of extreme of it. But what is happening there is your prefrontal cortex is also shut down. So your system basically shuts down everything that it doesn't need to be able to fight or flight in the situation that it's perceived you're in. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that happens, you can't perform logically. You can't think your way through a situation. You can't regulate your emotions. So it's, it's a really kind of highly stressful scenario for people to be in. So if you take your kind of typical old school sales manager who thinks that by yelling about what's needed and belittling people for what they've not achieved and highlighting the big dog for what he has achieved actually what they're doing is keeping people in this constant state of fear and in that state your brain simply cannot do good work um but it's 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 fascinating when you think how me- how much leadership is takes that approach and you quite often find in those sorts of organizations that they their recruitment process is often referred to as a revolving door oh absolutely because people can't you know people can't hack it and then you you know that that's then perceived as oh well you know you just can't find good people these days anymore well actually <laughs> there perhaps needs to be a you know a, a, a in a look through in terms of, of how, how they're inducted, how they're um, managed, how they're encouraged, how they're motivated, how they're, you know, trained. There's, there's so much around it, but yeah, you know, that ultimate breaking point, I guess is, is resignation, isn't it? People, people vote with their feet when they, they can't cope with it anymore or choose not to cope with it anymore. A phrase that stood out for me um, from a leader who will remain unnamed um (laughs) to regularly and openly refer to their staff as assets to be sweated oh yeah sweat the asset that's a great (laughs) (laughs) 1980s style boiler room type approach to the commercial team and everyone else but uh yeah that was was fascinating I, i i wanted to touch on stress and sales i once um had um, pressure and stress described to me um, like a balloon. So a party balloon, um, we've all been there blowing up the balloons, we've forgotten the little pump and you've got half an hour before everyone arrives and you don't want to pay the extra 40 quid for running over your time in the community centre. So, you, <laughs> so you're blowing up these balloons and trying not to pair them in two round ones and one long one, um, despite everything in your head telling you that that's what you want to do because it's a six-year-old party. And... Uh, there's an optimum balloon where you're blowing it up and you absolutely nail it. It's not too, it's not uh, too sort of uh, deflated, so it looks limp and pathetic, and it's not at that point where it's going to burst in your face. And that's the perfect balloon. And it was described to me that that is the sort of p- the optimum level of pressure that people like to have. Most people like to have mm-hmm. in work because we do our best work when at least there's you know, you feel a sense of achievement. Um, yeah. But if you go over that amount, then um, that's when the pressure turns into stress. And that sort of stressful yeah. feeling where the balloon, the metaphoric balloon is going to explode in your face. And that really resonated with me because mm-hmm. if you aren't under any pressure, so you're, you're the limp, pathetic balloon that hasn't got enough air in it, <laughs> then, you know, you, you, you can't feel that sort of sense of, sense of achievement because the thing that you're doing is too easy now we all like an easy day now and again because that's you need them but um i i'm just interested to um 
to get your thoughts on on st- on stress and pressure, mm. particularly related to sales. But I suppose it's a general question. Yeah, and um, yeah, that that kind of sweet spot. I've not heard of that balloon analogy before, but I really like it. I think it's yeah, you, you can you can really resonate with it of feeling like that, can't you? That kind of maxed out. It's where my head was yesterday in terms of, of just coping with too many things, you know, almost just too many tabs open and my brain was about to explode. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, you're absolutely bob on that the, the analogy is completely right. If there's not enough stimulation for your brain, i.e. tasks are too easy, tasks are too mundane, there's no level of challenge, then there isn't enough stimulation to your brain. And what actually happens is there isn't enough adrenaline produced. So, so much of our behaviours are driven actually just by chemicals in our brain and they're sparked by different things. So if you are in a, um, a kind of a really low pressure environment and you don't have goals or perhaps you're not really clear on what that expectation is um if you can do it with your eyes shut you know that kind of lack of challenge um could have you in that state of your flaccid balloon shall we say um of this kind of just okay i'll just rock up and you know there isn't that spark or there isn't that motivation to to push yourself um the the almost the, the far other end of that is probably more dangerous, um, both from a performance perspective, but also from a mental health point of view and a, a well-being point of view in that um, if you're trying to do a role that is outside of your comfort zone, um, you might have heard of this kind of state of flow um, that gets talked about. And this state of flow concept is this sweet spot. It's, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. And when you're in this state of flow, you, you lose sense of, of time. You're just absolutely absorbed in what you're doing. You're normally playing to your strengths. So what you love doing and what you're naturally good at doing, you um, are doing it intrinsically from a motivational point of view, you haven't got a hand on your back pushing you to do it. You're, you're doing it for your love of it <clears throat> and your enjoyment of the task and the challenge of the task. So I don't know, you imagine a games developer um, who is just really techy and is just absolutely in this state of flow when they're trying to create something that they've never done before and it's using their strengths but it's pushing them to really kind of um create new ideas their brain is firing off everywhere all of these these great um energetic lots of adrenaline lots of of um stimulation if you like in the brain the minute that you tip into too much stimulation then that, that is where the reaction that I talked about earlier can happen. This kind of, it, it creates this overwhelm and a state of overwhelm quickly tells your amygdala, that kind of fight or flight region of your brain that you're at risk. So that's when you start feeling kind of your heart might increase and your body is going into that kind of fight or flight stage. And that's where you, you kind of prefrontal cortex will shut down and, and kind of off you go into this state of, of panic. And, that there is where I think you're describing your kind of overfilled balloon where it is literally about to pop. And, you know, quite often in today's working world, and we touched on it earlier in terms of this kind of always switched on um, world or expectations, if you like, that we live largely kind of, I guess it's come from the the tech um, innovations and things that have changed the world of work. But um, that element of always being switched on means that we we live in this kind of state of constant micro stresses. So it might not be massive car crash type things that happen that stress you out. It might be sitting in traffic on the way to work, missing your train, getting into work late, being a couple of minutes late, logging on to that Zoom call, not quite being prepared enough because you've got 300 things on your to-do list at the same time 
And all of those kind of micro stresses just build up and build up and build up. And that is where you run the risk of um, people kind of feeling this, this real sort of chronic state of um, stress. And that is where, you know, quite significant sort of health implications sort of follow. So there is this real sweet spot, absolutely. I'm going to bring to mind your, your balloon analogy i might use that in some of my sessions because i think that's a great way of kind of bringing it to mind as to, to where you're trying to help people work well consider it a gift from me that i stole from someone else <laughs> um, <laughs> i um i've seen it seen it happen a few times where you know people have these um these tests that you do not the facebook which biscuit are you on a friday but the the, the proper psychological sort of tests and the the young theory, theory tests where you can get your character um, analysed and they can be phenomenally um, insightful and useful for managers mm. to, to build into their people strategy. And, and then you get the, the sort of, this, this example is from someone who was a very blue character for those who are familiar with the colours and they're <laughs> extremely analytical, um, uh-huh. very methodical for a, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a technical director. Um, yeah. so, you know, so it's very sort of stereotypically blob on as to what you'd expect. And there was a situation where there was a there was a technical problem, and it was all hands on deck, as sometimes these things happen. And it was get the pizzas in. We're working late into the night, um, and it was engineers, you know, like um, army ants over these over these pieces of kit that had to go out for a safety critical um, project. Mm. And it got to about about three o'clock in the morning, and wow. everyone's a little bit. Uh, worse aware in terms of uh, the amount of work they've done and lack of breaks mm. and there was a there was a review are they ready essentially this was are they ready to go on a helicopter to go out to where they need to go to um, the la- yeah the last check was this technical directors and his I'll paraphrase it slightly his words which surprised everyone were <laughs> F it it's good enough and Everyone stood and was in complete shock because what and what I'd had it described to me as by by someone after the after the fact was that he was in such a such a state of stress yeah that he'd completely reverted to his opposite type now his opposite type was more of a sort of yellow creative yeah let's paint the world green and it'll be fine and don't worry and don't worry about the detail let's just go for it you know yeah. the people that you're more likely to find in a creative role, marketing, that sort of thing. And then it was explained to me why this had happened. And what, what it made me think about was the was spotting the signs of stress in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And unless you're, I suppose, unless you're trained or you're just born with this massive compassion or you learn from an expert like yourself, that would just, you could pass it off as, oh, blimey, what's wrong with him? Nearly named him then. Um, <laughs> uh, what's you know what's up within we're all tired and, and you know or whatever it might be whereas actually it was a it was a inadvertent probably cry for help yeah yeah absolutely and um what i mean i did a mental health awareness and advocacy in the workplace catchy uh, course um earlier this year now it was really insightful but it only scratched the surface uh, of, of these such things and uh, i just wonder do you feel that and do you advocate that that sort of stress management and awareness should form part of people's people strategy i mean a lot of companies don't even have a people strategy but is that that something that needs to be um built in and weaved into the culture of the company yeah i think it's such a, a major issue nowadays isn't it you know I'm no expert on mental health and I don't claim to be. And, you know, it's, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in the workplace, as is stress. You know, there, in a, a study that I was reading about, um, God, this, is, this is going back. So again, I'm not going to try and give specifics on it. But the, the bit that kind of calls to mind for me is that when we're trying to do um, we're trying to sort of operate in this always on um, mode. We are so ineffective. We become, we shut down our abilities hugely. And 
um, the, the, the bit that's, that sticks in mind is that the, um, the cognitive ability of an MBA master's graduate um, from Harvard becomes comparable to a nine-year-old when they are working in this kind of um, trying to do too many things at once or just always switched on way right. of working. Mm. And, you know, you kind of think how, how much time within the kind of working day are people in this ineffective brain state for a, a whole range of different reasons, you know, whether that is this state of fear um, because of the way they're managed, whether it's overwhelmed because half the business has been furloughed. So those still in the business have got three times the workload that they can manage. You know, there's so much going on right now. All of this fear of redundancy, fear of um, whether businesses are going to go under, you know, all of this creates such, such a kind of hot pot of, of stress for, for everybody um, that, you know, it's, it's no wonder that it presents itself as stress. And I think, you know, for me, yes, there is a, an HR policy, people strategy type responsibility. But in my mind, it's, it's your leaders, it's your, it's your frontline managers that need to be equipped with what to, to look out for and how to help their, their people when they see them reaching those, those points. And that, that only really comes from getting to know your people. You know, I like to think that people that I was direct line managing, I would spot changes in their behavior or I would spot changes even in their body language or, um, you know, common things that you see when people are under real states of stress is sickness. Obviously, there's the, the obvious sort of bigger um, areas of um, lateness or uh, lots of absenteeism, that sort of thing. But also, you know, people withdrawing, people that step away from the kind of banter that, you know, were once quite... Um, sociable at work and then all of a sudden they're they're kind of sitting quietly and they're not you know they're, they're not sort of getting involved in things these are these are sort of smaller signs that that leaders need to to kind of be mindful of really and take the time to listen one of the one of the things from a, a neuroscience bit that really interested me and i kind of really pondered on it from a thought from a leadership perspective is that um one of the quickest ways to help reduce cortisol within another individual, so the, the stress hormone cortisol, is to show empathy and care. And somebody providing empathy and care and actually listening to you reduces cortisol really quite dramatically and actually boosts dopamine, which is the, the kind of feel-good reward type feeling and um oxytocin which is that sort of bonding the the kind of feeling that you get when you you know with your children or looking into your puppy's eyes or whatever it might be and that sort of those boosts of oxytocin and those boosts of um dopamine help us feel safe again and they basically settle the brain down they, they basically say it's okay we're not at risk here um and I think, you know, that is the most powerful role a leader can play is to, to kind of understand and know their people and listen. Well, that's it. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, um, the same manager that I, or a business owner that I mentioned earlier, but not naming, who referred to their staff as uh, assets to be sweated, which has obviously resonated quite badly with me. Um, yeah, they, they, they also advised me that I needed to stop doing so many one-to-ones, which was one a month. Wow. <laughs> Where, yeah. Your shit, will you? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, where the biggest thing that people would tell me in their one-to-ones was, I'm so glad we're doing one-to-ones because you yeah. get that, you just get that moment where your manager, your sales manager, whatever manager it is, is taking the time to only speak to you about you. And I mean, from my perspective, generally, genuinely care about yeah. how they are, 
what what I can do to help. I mean, you you described yourself earlier. I mean, I I once did a mock up of a the back of one of my business cards that I that I started using in a in as part of my induction to new members of my sales team, and I'd written on the back in crayon deliberately um, my name with some of the letters put incorrectly. Um, you know, spelt you know backwards and stuff with the the job title shit umbrella, because I you know I work for them they they don't work for me and I was keen to sort of spell that out. I mean I had shortcomings as a as a manager, of course I did, but it was to to set them at ease when they're starting because they're already possibly nervous, anxious, and excited about uh-huh. starting a new job. They don't know what's ex- exactly what's going to be expected of them, and they need to to know that they can go to someone because you need that person in work, not necessarily your boss, but you need that person in work who you can speak openly to because at the end of the day, life's complicated. And if, and if leaders don't, don't appreciate that, despite their own being as complicated as everybody else's, then you you do get that breakdown and and lack of understanding as to you've got humans working for you. And that, that, that can, that can be devastating for individuals, particularly if they're not, as resilient as others mm. and you know, when thrown into context of a stressful job a stressful work environment you know it becomes even more important that the leadership is strong and the leadership is is good and puts you know puts humans as you you quite rightly said you know front and center so many companies talk about how people are our best asset and you know it's all about if we look after our people then you know they'll look after our customers and this kind of thing and and in reality then you see so much of the behaviors playing out within leadership teams and within management that don't give that message you know that that don't speak to their people in a way that um, shows that sort of care or empathy or that they're listened to. And that has a massive impact, you know, A, you lose people who won't tolerate it, but, you know, from a, a worst case perspective, you know, that then sends those people home in not a great state of mind. Um, and I think, you know, that that is unfortunately all too common within so many sales environments well i could speak to you for hours about this but um there's a sort of optimum amount of time for a podcast until we lose <laughs> so uh, i'm gonna have to, to, to sort of head towards the end of it and then maybe we could uh, pick this up on a future episode but um one thing that um i like to get from 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 guests is one sales tip as long as it's not people buy from people because then i'd have to <laughs> And put you off, um, and I don't know whether you wanted to give a sales tip that was to salespeople um, or to and or to sales leaders. Um, but I'd be um, I'd be grateful if you could uh, let us know what your sales tip is. I think, and it, it's probably um, verging near your people buy from people from a um, from a common element that is advised with sales but the reason that I'm going to use it is whilst you hear people talk about it in training people rarely do it and that is listening I think the power of listening as a sales leader is huge Um, but I think the power of listening as as a salesperson is is massive Um, and to put your ego almost to one side, put your agenda to one side. I think if you can truly understand what it is that the person that you're talking to is looking for, then it almost needn't feel like sales. Um, It becomes then a conversation. And and that for me was always what I um, tried to, to kind of coach my teams to do. But also in the business that I run now, you know, I, I, I can honestly say I don't feel like I ever sell. Um, now, clearly, I am doing some sales because I'm making, I'm making, uh, you know, I'm making money. So, you know, I am selling to people, um, but it doesn't feel like it because I take it from a, an approach of, of kind of listening to, to what those people are, are needing and, and adding value where I can. Fantastic. 
Thank you very much. And thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Fab.